0: This is Event Masters, behind-the-scenes stories, experiences, and lessons shared by the world's leading event experts. Hosted by Christian Napier.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Event Masters, which is a behind-the-scenes look at the stories and experiences and lessons learned, gained by the world's leading event experts. I'm Christian Napier, and Super thrilled to be joined by our next guest, Mr. Michael Wingate.
0: Michael, how you doing? Very good, sir. How are you doing?
1: Well, I'm doing just fabulous. Uh, we're now in the thick of my favorite time of the year, uh, this holiday season. Nice. And I'm here at home in Salt Lake City, Utah. But where are you joining me from?
0: I'm joining you from Florence, South Carolina, a little small town in between Columbia and Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Wow. South Carolina. So is,
1: yes. uh, is that the, is that the location? Is that the permanent location?
0: Is that where you're living now is in South Carolina? It is the location of my, my parents' home. So I am with my parent, my aging parents. Yes.
1: Well, uh, good on you for, uh, caring for them, but I know this work takes you all over the world. And, and I want to talk about that a little bit because you're one of the, uh, segments of, of, uh, professionals that are known in the industry as games gypsies or event gypsies. And I'm going to ask you about that a little bit because you have lived with your family all over this planet, but just to give uh, our viewers and listeners a little bit of background on you, you are, are the man uh, that people call when they need help with logistics, <laughs> logistics being absolutely a critical area of the events. And you've been a professional logistics manager for three decades. Uh, going all the way wow. back to Atlanta, I think. And uh, I'll ask you about how you got into it here in a little bit, but you have worked on events like the uh, Olympic Games, FIFA World Cup. I know earlier this year, year you were up in Lake Placid doing the uh, FISU uh, Winter University ad there. And, again, been involved in more than 17 major, major, uh, super high-profile uh, domestic and international events and so it's a it's an honor to have you on here because nobody knows logistics more than you do and and I'm really great to, I'm grateful to have you here with us today, Michael, before we get into uh some of the key lessons that you've learned and stories uh, that you want to share, why don't you take us back to the beginning and and describe for us how you got involved? A, in logistics, and B, in major events?
0: Well, first of all, let me say thank you for having me, Christian. It is an honor to be here. You, have, you are a leading voice in the, in the event industry and telling the stories, and we really appreciate it. So again, thank you for having me. But to answer your question, uh, I got started in events, and I want to say it's a God thing, and, and I know you know what that means. Uh, a God thing, and also a lot of people had a lot of hands in in this. So I'll go back to the beginning, and I'll try to tell the story without crying because it, it really touches my heart. But uh, I was working in Atlanta as a security guard, and I happened to be working in the same building as the Olympic Committee. And I got a chance to meet a lot of people, talk to a lot of people. And of course, one day, using my incredible wit and charm, uh, I was able to get a position as a clerk in what a department called the Equal Economic Opportunity. Uh, it's a department that, that's really uh, advocates for for minority and, and uh, women-owned businesses to get access to Olympic contracts. Well, there was an email that went out probably a couple of months before the, the large test event season asking for non-essential personnel to Uh, give names so that they can work on events. So fast forward, a young lady by the name, and you know this person, Jean Marie Morrissey. Uh, She was working in volunteers at that time, and she put my name into logistics. Again, she didn't think it was just filling a slot for her, but that was a life-changing moment for me. Uh, She put my name in logistics, and I was teamed with another name that you know, Ron Delmont. Uh, We happen to be working at the Clark Atlanta University and we're we're actually bumping in for a test event that's happening there. So I meet Ron and he tells me, "Okay, here's the warehouse. Here's all the items that's going to go in the spaces. Uh, Here's the maps. So we're going to go and do this. And when we start to do the work, miraculously, he gets a call to go to a meeting. So I'm sitting here with this map and with these items and with these dollies, and I could either A, wait for him to return, or I could go ahead and do it myself. Um, so we ended up putting, uh, or I ended up putting um, the items in the spaces until he came back. And once he emerged or re-emerged, uh, all the items were done for that particular space. And then we would start on another space and he would tell me, okay, here's the map. Again, same concept. Here's the map, here are the items, and this is how it goes. So, miraculously, again, he gets called to another meeting. Now, I, I've yet to ask him whether these meetings actually factual meetings or not, but he gets called to another meeting, and I begin to do the same process of moving the items into the particular spaces. When I say that, uh, I heard the angels singing, the the heavens opened up and all of that that's that's what happened because i actually loved uh i loved that time there i learned a lot and i i felt that i was good at it so fast forward again uh i'm working back in eeo the Equ- equal economic uh department and me and my boss are not getting along at all and i mean at all i'm threatening to contemplating quitting so a shout out to another young lady Uh, her name is Deborah Mathis Browder. She said, hang on a minute before you make a drastic move like that. Let me make a phone call. She calls Ron Delmont and reminds Ron about me and says, I need you to hire this guy. And so he did. And again, um, three people I've already mentioned who just doing their jobs in their normal everyday life had a life-changing, um, Experience for or made a life changing experience for me. So I get transferred into to uh, logistics, and again, heavens, angels singing, and I am placed as the venue logistics manager for one of the um, uh, the events, one of the venues there in Atlanta. So um, at the end of the event, another friend of mine by the name of Tadarrow Bates, who was a former security officer, who also got uh, promoted and got a job with the Atlanta uh, Olympic Committee, he gave me this 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 advice that he probably thinks is is nothing, but he said, "You know what, Michael? I think you can be one of those persons that travel around the world and execute these events." And that that sentence alone um, made a real big difference to me, and it birthed something in me, and therefore I was like, it gave me the confidence that okay, maybe I can do this work, and and travel along with these other talented individuals and you would think i wish i had a story that says and that you know spurred me on to to move to this but what happens i got married i had two kids i had responsibilities so i was it wasn't in the cars to actually chase the olympic dream at that time but somewhere down the road i had this um I had this moment where I, I got the, the burning, the yearning to, to join the Olympic Committee again. And I called Ron Delmont and I said, Ron, you know, uh, I'm here in Atlanta, but I would love to join the movement again. Are there any opportunities available? He said, hang on a minute. And the next thing you know, two months later, me and my family, my dog, my car, we're all packed up and we're moving to Salt Lake City where I meet you and and other talented people there in Salt Lake to put on the games. And really that's where it really, you know, uh, I realized that this is something that I want to do. However, my oldest daughter uh, begged me, like, Dad, I don't wanna travel, you know, from school to school. Can we please, uh, can we stay in one location for my high school career? And I was like, David, that's a, that's a, a fair uh, answer and a fair question. I will definitely do that. So we moved back to Atlanta and, um, you know, we were working there uh, with Ms. Mathis Browder again. And I got the bug again, Christian, to join the, the uh, movement and started traveling and decided at that point that traveling is what I really want to do and, and execute these events. So uh, I would say after Salt Lake City, after my oldest daughter graduating, uh, shout out to Jasmine. Uh, I decided to, uh, you know, just, just travel the world and um, see where this adventure took, takes me. So that's how I got in events. And, and I've been very lucky and very blessed uh, over my career to travel the world and, and do what I love. And not many people in this world uh, can say that, that they actually get paid to travel and do what they love. So very lucky person very blessed person
1: uh it's a fantastic story there's a lot to unpack there michael uh but a couple of things i want to ask you about it. number one is could you comment just a little bit more on these seemingly very insignificant acts by other people that had dramatic impacts on your life so you mentioned Jean marie is just you know going through a list of people and saying hey you know Maybe an opportunity for you to do this here, that there, whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, All the way to you uh, picking up a phone and calling Ron Delmont and asking him if there's any, you know, if he's aware of any opportunities. Have you ever thought what your life would be like if G. Marie doesn't tick this box and say, hey, uh, Michael, go over here. Or you say to yourself, nah, you know, working those games was fun, but... I don't know if I can call Ron up and see what's going on. Exactly. You ever thought what your life would have been like if you, if these small little choices hadn't happened, where the trajectory of your life would have gone?
0: Again, this is the part that's very emotional. I, I think about it all the time. And I try to at least, as much as I can, to remind them of the the, the impact they had on my life and, and my family's life uh, lives, rather. And again, as you said, they didn't think anything of it. They don't really understand the significance, but I really try to just let them know that I really appreciate uh, what in, what they've done and the impacts that they've had on me and my family, because it is life-changing. I, I had no idea, Christian, what I was going to do, how I was going to support two girls and a, and a wife and a dog and, you know, bills. I had no idea. Uh, so... Uh, to be honest with you, I, I didn't finish college, so I did not have a a path in terms of a clear path in terms of what I was going to do. But as I mentioned, when the heavens opened and and you hear the the word from God that this is what uh, you're supposed to do, I, I just ran with that and had trust that I was going to be okay. And again, the the impact that these individuals had, you know, really helped to solidify that. So i'm very thankful and i I, I try to tell them all the time which is why i'm shouting them out here in this in this interview i really want them to know what kind of impact it really had
1: well they had huge impacts uh, clearly uh the other part that i want to come back to that you talked about when you were sharing your your genesis your beginnings into this industry was this notion that you actually wanted to travel the world you know uh So we've, we've introduced the term already event gypsy here Mm -hmm. in the, in, in the interview, but you know, there are different ways that people can get involved in these events. I mean, there are a lot of people who organize one, uh, an Olympic games or a FIFA world cup or something, and then that's it. And they go back to their regular lives. Mm -hmm. There are some who stay in the industry uh, that uh, you know, work for, a large organization. It could be a sponsor or a supplier or something like that. They may have a home base and then they kind of go, you know, to the various events that they're working on uh and fly in and fly out. And, you know, I was an independent consultant for much of my career, but was doing fly in, fly out. I never actually relocated. Mm-hmm. Then there are people who, like you, uh, go either work for the local organizing committee or for another organization that supports the organizing committee, but actually physically relocate for a period of time. It could be mm-hmm. months or it could be a year or two or three and you know in in some cases it may you you might be single and you just do that yourself, and in some cases you may be towing family along and so uh i'm curious to 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 know or to learn more about how you decided that, you know, I actually want to become one of these event gypsies, Uh, not just fly in, fly out, but actually physically relocate. And you mentioned that was kind of, you know, a challenge as your daughter got older and she wanted to go to the same high, you know, one high school and so on and so forth. But tell us a little bit about how that came about, how you decided I want to become an event gypsy, how your family reacted to this night, this idea that, yeah, we're going to pack up the car and the dog and we're heading out to Salt Lake City <laughs> from Atlanta. You know, how did that actually come about? And and maybe you can just describe for us a little bit about what it's actually like to be an event gypsy on a day-to-day
0: basis. Great question. Uh Yeah, we were the, the Black Clampers, but except we weren't moving to Beverly Hills, unfortunately. Um when I had the full support of the family and another thing that that um, I can say that I wasn't fulfilled, I wasn't I was doing a job and I was good at it and I was happy doing the job. But it wasn't the job that I was supposed to do what I was born to do uh, again. And, and again, you know this when you have uh, when you have a path, when God gives you a path, that you take this route and you choose something else. It may work for a while, but it's not what you're called to do. So I had to go back to what I was called to do. Uh, And um, so therefore, you know, sitting down and talking with the family, hey, we have this opportunity uh, to move to Salt Lake City or move to another location. Of course, uh, my daughters weren't very happy about some of those decisions. But I will tell you this in terms of Salt Lake City. Um, My daughter was, uh, my oldest daughter at the time was going to middle school and uh, she did not want to go. By the time we left Salt Lake City, which was a year, I had people, multiple families calling my house asking if my daughter could stay with them uh, to finish high school. And she was, you know, really excited about the opportunity of staying uh, in Salt Lake City to to um to finish her career, of course, no, honey, you have to come with us because you're our child, and that's not an option. But um, yeah, that that was something that I, I thought was very interesting uh, about this whole nomadic lifestyle. Incidentally, when the youngest daughter um we had an ch- opportunity to move to Vancouver, and and the youngest daughter at this point is going to middle school again. I think that's uh. It was a, anyway, she was going to middle school. So, uh, and the, by that time, the oldest daughter was in college. So she was kind of exempt from this whole move. Uh, but the youngest did not want to go to school. I uh, didn't want to change schools, did not want to leave the country and all those types of things. Uh, and again, her experiences were so, uh, so great. And she enjoyed her time and she met lots of people and was exposed to a lot of things. By the time we left, she was really, really upset about going back home. Now you think about that. She was upset about leaving and now she's upset about going back home. So shout out to my youngest daughter, Michaela. Uh she was um it, it was a it was a life changing moment for everyone to experience something new, to, you know, hear different uh cultures and to hear, sorry languages and to see experience different cultures and and all those types of things. So uh I think it's a good thing for any uh, maybe jumping ahead, but I think it's a good thing for any family to one be exposed to something else, be exposed to whatever's out there in the world because it is a bi- it is a big world, and as much as we Americans think that this is this is all and this is it, uh, there's a lot of other interesting and valuable and um, you know cultures and languages and opportunities out there that you may not get here in the states so that's my plug for for travel but well, i sorry love sorry I, christian one more thing i, I will also forget, add man. that uh the buck for travel was was born very early uh because as um and, and you might hear this in in the black family a lot by the time you turn 18 you got to get out that that's not a that's not a request that's a that's a promise so you have to uh, my parents encouraged us to get out and see the world, uh, to experience something different than this small city of Florence. So that was born very early for me and my brother and, and we've seen it, um, you know, take root, uh, manifest itself in, in this event gypsy, uh,
1: uh, career. Well, you know, coming back to what you were talking about with your daughters and, Uh, It's pretty rare for for people to have that opportunity to to allow their their family, especially their children, to see these different parts of the world, Mm -hmm. experience these different cultures and languages and foods and 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 so on and so forth. But, you know, that actually takes me back to the number one bullet that you had on your list, which is people are people, Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, just reading what you said here, regardless of the country, race, religion, color, set of people are roughly the same all over the world. They want to live peaceably, love, and provide for their families, uh, earn a decent wage, go on a vacation. You know, just everyday stuff. And and so, I I want you to, to talk about that a little bit more and how mm-hmm. you how you discovered this. You know, when you first went, you know, from say Atlanta to Salt Lake. You know, that's a very different environment. Uh, Yes. uh, It's East Coast. We're more West. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, certainly the African-American population here is much smaller uh, in percentage and real terms Mm -hmm. in in Salt Lake City or Salt Lake County in the state of Utah than it is back in Georgia. Uh, So, yeah, one could be rightly assuming, well, gosh, I don't know if I want to go there. This seems really different. The people are very different. It could be kind of scary. Yeah. But over time you learn this lesson that people are people so why don't you kind of take us through that journey
0: i'll I'll tell you, I'll tell you this and this is where I, I realized that or two stories from from Salt Lake specifically uh, when we moved into our home which was down in Sandy so you exactly know where that is uh, we moved into a home on sandy and we lived, moved into a cul-de-sac and when I tell you that three neighbors Um, The day after we moved in, came over and brought, you know, uh, some drinks and one, I think, bought a cake and one had some rotisserie chicken or something to that effect. Came over and just knocked on the door and said, hey, we're your neighbors. Uh, Welcome to welcome to town. And, you know, call us if you need us. I live here. I live here, et cetera, et cetera. That never happens. Never happens uh, in Atlanta. Uh, in any of the in South Carolina in any of the neighborhoods that I was a part of uh, so y- you realize that you're in a very unique situation here and and just to you know let the guard down and just accept people to who, as who they are and that was a very humbling very rewarding experience again as i told you they were calling my house to ask me if i would let my daughter stay with them for their for her high school career so just the love that people showed, uh, was, was, was very good. Also, as I mentioned, my daughter, um, she was in middle school and she had friends who wanted to go to the mall and just hang out. No, you're not going alone. You're going with an armed escort, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but in Salt Lake city, we, you know, we felt safe in, you know, the, 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 the city, the, the state is a very safe, um, uh, the culture is, is very, um, you know, religious based. So we felt safe to allow her to do that. And again, that's when you realize that, you know, people are people and you just take people to where they are and, and how they are and, and accept that. But that story really was born from, uh, I'm in, I'm in Korea and I'm watching a, a world cup match And picture this. I'm in the press box. I have the opportunity to go to a press box and I'm I'm watching a match and I'm looking down and I see uh, a a man, a father, the wife, a a young daughter who is every bit of four or five and then skip some some roles. And I see a grandmother and a grandfather. So the men are on each end and they are glued to what's happening on the pitch. They're oblivious to everything else. Their focus is on the pitch. The mother has one of those, uh, get smart gizmo bags and it's about yay big. Uh, and she has everything imaginable in there. It's like, it's a, it's a wizard hat. She keeps reaching in and she's pulling out some random toy cookies, you know, snacks. I mean, she's a bottle, you know, I I wouldn't be surprised what else she had in that, in that purse. And she's sitting there just as calm, not necessarily paying attention to what's happening on the pitch, but kind of watching her daughter. Again, skip over a couple of uh, seats and you have a, grand, a a older grandma type of uh, person. And again, she is not paying attention to what's happening on the pitch, but she's kind of watching the young girl play and she's playing between the three seats and she's just having a good time. And she's going in her purse and she's offering candy and and i'm looking at this scene i'm like oh my gosh this happens in almost any sporting event whether it's soccer or football or basketball whether she's black or she's asian or she's white or she's korean and i realized that this scene plays out more than more than not in everywhere and that's when i really learned that you know regardless of location regardless of race and color and socioeconomic backgrounds and all of that people are just the people all over the world so it doesn't really matter uh and we should be more accepting and more um uh i can't think of a word but we should be more accepting to people uh, based on that and we should not really um look at our differences but really celebrate our our the things that we have in common i know it sounds cheesy but man, this is just how I I, I I I'm I'm rolling these days. Oh, I I you, hey, you're preaching to the choir
1: here. I believe that one hundred million percent uh, that people are people, and we all pretty much are uh, wanting the same thing. And ultimately, we have a lot more in common than we do differences. That's for sure. So I I think that is uh it's absolutely vital. One thing though that I actually want to ask you about. That kind of goes along with this is is uh, fundamentally we are the same, but but there are differences, uh, particularly in the way that things work in some of these countries. You know, so uh, you know, organizing a major event in South America, in Brazil, may be different than in Vancouver, which may be mm-hmm. different than in the Middle East, which may be different than in uh, Europe. You know, or as you mentioned in, in uh, East Asia there in, in Korea. So, you know, how, you know, how did you go about uh, navigating some of those challenges of, of having to maybe adapt your way of working to the local context uh, because, okay, I learned this is how we did it in Atlanta. Well, this is how mm-hmm. we did it in Salt Lake. Okay, well, this is how we did it in Korea. Well, this is how we did it in Vancouver. This, mm-hmm. you know, this is how we did it in Sochi, et cetera, et cetera. You know? so, so you're always adapting uh, what you're doing to this local context because although we are people, uh, people are people, and we have similarities, the way that we work and the way that decisions are made and things are done in different countries may be quite a bit different
0: another great great question and i will say i would answer that by saying that that is that is a a misnomer and something that a lot of event gypsies get wrong where they walk into a different situation a different city a different culture a different language and assume that what they did previously is going to automatically apply here Uh, unfortunately doing events organizing events is not um it's not cookie cutter it's not square hole in the square uh square square peg in the square hole and um uh, round peg in the round hole it is sometimes they have a mentality of this is my peg and it's going to fit everywhere and it just doesn't work so one of the things that i have been really lucky and blessed to have learned is that the event culture is i would say um 55 percent of what you know 45 percent of what you uh 40 percent of what you don't know and five percent how the country itself does business or in other words uh you have to understand how this country does its work uh to be successful i'll give you a, an example there uh in the middle eastern culture. You can't just walk into a random person's office and say, hey, I need XYZ. I need two people and four golf carts. You have to sit down. You have to ask them about their day. You have to have coffee. You may have to have some snacks. You may have to engage in random conversation just to understand, uh, to have a rapport. And then you can ask for what you need. Now, in some cultures, that's like wasting time. Don't, don't come in here with the extra um, uh, conversation. Just tell me what you need, and then we can, I can get on to what I'm supposed to be doing or what I was doing earlier. But in the Middle East, that's considered offensive. In some cases in the Middle East, uh, you sit down and you, and you take off your shoes, and you sit, you know, crisscross applesauce, and you have uh, discussions like they did in their, um, you know, in their cultural uh, uh, Native culture. Again, that's not something that we do in the West, but if you're in the Middle East and you're conducting business, this is something that you have to adapt to. I can give you some, some other examples uh, of doing business in different cultures um, uh, that I think should be uh, out of the statute limitations in terms of uh, doing anything wrong. But in America, if you get, let's say you get stopped in a, a traffic accident, uh, if you show any money, they automatically assume that's a bribe and therefore you go into to jail. Um, I'm not going to say the country, but it is almost frowned upon if you don't show money in that country, if you get caught, um, if you get stopped for a traffic violation. So it's just different ways to do business in different cultures. And again, that's the fun part of it because one, you get to learn um, and you get to share these stories uh, as you uh, progress in your career. So... Uh, I, I love it. I love meeting new people and understanding how they do things. Because again, here in America, we don't have a lock on this is how it should be done. There is um, varying opinions of how it should be done, how it can be done, um, and, and therefore taking something from all of these groups and cultures and ideas uh, makes the makes the pot go go uh, well. And keeps everyone engaged, so uh, that is that is what I've I've learned in this this process. But yeah, there are different ways to, as my grandfather used to say, uh, shake a shake a stick or something to that effect. <laughs> well, I'm wondering if you can
1: give us a specific example or story, and I'll and I'll lead with mine or one okay. of them, right? So, just kind of flipping through the the rolodex in my memory. I remember working on the Asian Games Doha two thousand six, mm-hmm. and uh, and you know after the Commonwealth Games ended in Melbourne, there a lot of Australians came into Doha you know mm-hmm. to help uh, with the final months of preparation for those games and mm-hmm. and uh, one of those had previously worked in uh, Salt Lake City, and I knew her well and mm-hmm. and when she arrived, I was so happy to see her. I just went and. and just gave her a big hug and just say, how are you? And immediately, you know, I was pulled aside by, by, uh, one of the members of the organizing committee and say, we don't do that here. And, (laughs) and they were right. You know, I, I, I had just temporarily forgotten where I was, I guess Mm -hmm. and stepped outside of the, of that cultural norm. And I was chastised rightfully so for, Mm -hmm. for, uh, you know, doing what I did and, And, you know, it was, I was embarrassed at the time because I, I, I knew, I knew I knew better, you know, I, Mm -hmm. I, I've been working there, you know, for a few months. And so I, I, I knew that I knew better and, and, uh, but it just, it just happened. So I'm curious, you know, on your side, if there's a specific particular instance, you know, where, uh, you were that fish out of water and, and either did something or you saw something happen where you're like, oops, uh, you know. That would have been totally fine back in, in the States, but that's not fine here. Yes.
0: So, uh, again, statute of limitations. I will say that um, in the, one of the countries that I worked in, a person got in an accident. A person that reported to me got in an accident. And like in Pulp Fiction, I had to call the fixer. And the fixer and I and that person and another person went to the police station and we had to exchange some money. We had to give some incentives to get some of the documents uh, changed to what would be more favorable for our insurance for uh, let's say the, the information flow. Um, we, we gave some encouragement uh, in the form of an envelope uh, and we walked out of the police station. One, no one went to jail, uh, two, uh, no one was, uh, let's say, chastised uh, unfavorably. We got a police report that said, you know, to the defend that some geese were hit or something to that effect. That was good for not only our insurance, but for the person that was also affected by um, the coming together of two vehicles. I'm, I'm trying to use my words carefully. So, again... You would never, you would never, ever try to manufacture documents or, or uh, change official documents in the States or in some of the Western countries uh, in the event of an accident. But in this particular country, you're, you're able to do that. In another country, uh, you're able to pay some money to go purchase a driver's license which would explain some of the accidents that you've seen in this country. But uh, people could pay, uh, let's say, in the form of a thousand, you know, whatever their currency is and, you know, pay to a person and pick up uh, some driver's license. So again, you you wouldn't imagine doing that here in the States because it's so regulated, but in some of the other cultures uh, it is it is possible is permissible. So. uh, (laughs) Yeah. I, I remember
1: a time when, uh, you know, we had some consultants and and we had some people that were, uh, you know, gypsies uh, living Mm -hmm. uh, who had come overseas uh, to work on a project and, and they, they were allowed to be there for about 18 months. And then um, they needed to get out of the country uh, to renew their visa. Mm Mm-hmm. And we were trying to renew the visa while the person was in the country, but we were just kept running into a lot of roadblocks. And so uh, as as the deadline was approaching, we were getting nervous. Like, what are we going to do with this person? Because uh, their visa is going to expire and we're going to be in a bad situation. And so we decided to temporarily send this person out of the country to work on another project that. Uh, we were doing. And then we were going to bring that person back. Mm -hmm. So uh, the person was gone for about six weeks and, and uh, uh, eventually we got put in touch with the right people in the country to say, well, just have them come back and we'll take care of it. We're like, well, we can't just have them get on a plane with, you know, without having a visa. And they're like, no, just have them get on the plane and we'll take care of it. All right. So he gets on the plane and he gets to the airport and uh, the the immigration official is looking at the passport and says, "Well, your visa here is expired. Um, uh, so please come into this office over here." And so he goes into this office over here, and then uh, they call in the person who runs immigration for the for that particular airport, this uh, international airport, who comes in and says, "Oh." So what was your name and he says well this was my name and this is my information and so on and so forth. He says well let me go check on this and and so he leaves for a couple of minutes and then he comes back and he says I don't see any problems here. Uh here you know it, it looks like everything's uh set up properly in the system so you're free to go and stamps the passport with the <laughs> visa and that's it. <laughs> like you said uh, we wouldn't be doing that here, uh, you know. That would probably uh, result in a crime, but there, it just yes, it was, had to be done. It's, it's how it was done. You, how know? you do business. Uh, <laughs> yes. So I love I love these stories. Well, you mentioned the wolf, and that takes me to point number three. Uh, uh, logistics equals the wolf. So why don't you describe what you mean by that and uh, the stories behind it?
0: So to any of my pulp fiction fans, uh, they remember when the gentleman was shot in, in the head in the face and they had to go to, I think it was Jules. They had to go to another person's house to fix this issue because they had blood and such and they were trying to avoid, uh, the law. So they had to call the wolf, uh, to come over and help fix the, the problem. And the wolf came, came, comes over and, they clean up the vehicle, they get scrubbed and they get changed, et cetera, et cetera. Again, for all my Pulp Fiction fans, you know you know that scene very well. Well, I, I use logistics as the wolf because a lot of times we're called to fix problems. Uh, as much as, you know, logistics and other functions we plan to and we replan and we think about contingencies and et cetera, et cetera, sometimes things happen where or either were forgotten. Um, the, the stone wasn't overturned or um, just things happen because they happen because it's a, an event. And and this isn't uh, years and years of practice. This is a temporary uh, event and people come together and there's a lot of moving parts. So sometimes things happen. In those instances when things happen, uh, I give a shout out to uh, one of my mentors, Stuart Ash. Who says logistics is usually called to fix problems because we have resources, i.e., people, trucks, space, um, and and therefore we can fix a lot of problems with a lot of those uh, with those things. So therefore, logistics is called to fix sometimes other functions um, problems. And I don't want to say other functions like everyone does it wrong and logistics is the only function that does it right. But again, with those resources, you can overcome a lot of challenges uh, in the event uh, in your event operations with those resources. So logistics is called to, let's say, hopefully overcome uh, some of those challenges.
1: That is- uh, Do you have a specific example? I mean, I, I can think of all different kinds of things that happen with sports equipment and you know other technical equipment and things of that nature. Uh, Or FFNE kind of stuff that uh, isn't where it's supposed to be, or whatever. But, you know, as throughout your 30 year career, any specific experiences uh, come to the fore of your mind, you know, when you talk about uh, logistics being the fixer, the wolf, um, where you had to step in and and take care of something?
0: There there are lots of stories. I will tell you the first one will be in Atlanta. Um, It is the Clark Atlanta University. And, and trash is piled up at the entrance of the of the loading dock, and I mean not one or two bags. I mean it's piled pretty high. Um, and somehow the cleaning waste department hasn't been able to get a hold of this trash. And we have spectators that's going to be coming in in less than two hours, and the the athletes are already on on site and they're training, et cetera, et cetera. So. Uh, we get a call, logistics. I know this isn't your role, but do you mind? Because you have people and you have two pickup trucks on site. Can do you mind uh, taking all the trash, uh, putting it on the trucks, and getting it out of here in time for the uh, in time for the match? Well, of course, we're not going to let our venue manager down, and we're not going to say no. That's not our role because that's not what we do. So what do we do? We dispatch. Um, men and women and resources to that location to get the trash put in the truck take it away and we assist moving forward we assist our cleaning and waste team to stay on top of trash moving forward uh throughout those games so again it's not something that we are that we were originally planned to do but uh, it is something that has to be done i'll give you another for example uh, and this was actually during a non-sporting event. So the Democratic national convention in Philadelphia, it is, it is July and it is hot and there's a lot of concrete and that sun is just, uh, baking people, uh, against that concrete. So logistics is charged with, um, Hey, for safety reasons, here's, uh, here's a couple of, of, um, Coolers full of ice and water and other, you know, energy drinks go around and pass these to people like are at transportation zones or police officers and in other locations where they're exposed and they don't have the opportunity to, you know, cool off and stuff. And so therefore logistics is charged with going around and just making sure people stay hydrated again, not something that is, you um, logistics responsibility to do, but we're happy to do that to make sure that everyone goes home uh, safe and, and all that. So again, there, there are many stories like that of, of logistics uh, stepping up uh, to fix different issues within the organization, within their operations. So when it comes to the job description of uh,
1: logistics, you know, the little the little sentence that you often see in these job descriptions, which is Other duties as assigned, right? Yes. (laughs) Could be anything from picking up other people's trash and hauling it out to getting other people's drinks. It's whatever needs to be done. Whatever is done. done. Okay. There are a couple of other points on here. I want to. I want to get to. Okay. Um. So, so one point that you talk about is data acceleration and efficiencies. And what you state here is the use of data has not only enhanced the planning, but event gypsies like yourself have a much better understanding of the operations ahead of time. So I'm wondering if you can kind of talk through this point. Uh, I think it's a really interesting point that you make here with data acceleration and efficiencies.
0: So back when I was, you know, getting involved in the in events back in the 1800s, uh, you know, we had folders we had uh, manila folders we had had, um, books paper physical uh, data that uh, is not necessarily easily transferable Uh, although there is there were um, mechanisms and especially in the olympics where you transfer data from one organization to the other uh, but it was more high level and not necessarily very detailed but um, and I, again, I'll give an example of this. But as we move into a more information age and more electronic age, um, now you have greater amounts of data in smaller platforms, whether it's jump drives or um, on individual laptops, et cetera, et cetera. So, and it's definitely down to the the uh, the lowest levels in terms of data now. So, with that acceleration of data what you see is people are using that data now in uh, in advance of what you would have done in the past and you're able to um, create uh, visions or, or paint pictures much like what I call actuaries do for the insurance companies. Um, they see a person who is 47 um, uh, black male and therefore you fit into this, this um, this this uh, area in terms of uh, for insurance purposes, and they have data to support that based on you know a mean average across the the states. Well, same thing now with the data that we see in, in events, you can project um, a lot of information based on data that you have from previous games. My example of that is, for instance, FFNE cap- data capture. For those who don't know, FFNE stands for furniture, fixtures, and equipment, all the stuff that is required for by each and every department. So in the past, we would go to, we would have these reviews where you sit down your um, your overlay team, your logistics team, your technology team, and like speed dating, you will sit in front of the overlay person and say, you're going to get a tent. You, this tent is going to be 10 by 10, and it's going to be in this location. Now move to logistics. Okay, in this particular tent, you're going to have one table, three chairs, a fan, et cetera, et etc, et etc. And then you move down to your next person technology, and you say, in this particular tent, you're scheduled to have a laptop, uh, a USB port, et cetera, et etc. So you walk out of there knowing um, all the commodities and all the things that you're going to have. Now, and with this new data, We don't ask those questions of what you need. Now we sit down, you know, many months and and sometimes years in advance to say, here is what your previous your previous people in this particular role have used in these particular spaces. Tell me what we can take away or tell me what we need to add. But we're coming now from a position of strength. Instead of asking what you need and giving people blank shopping lists, now we give them this is what you've had traditionally tell us what works, tell us what does not. Uh, so it gives us a, a greater opportunity to see more farther in advance, you know, exactly the amount of FF&E that we're going to need. Well, then that helps us to drive what kind of warehouse space that we're going to need to fit all this FF&E. And that also drives, well, how many vehicles uh, are we going to need to speak to when we're speaking to a distribution contractor? How many vehicles are we going to need? What's our per pallets that we're going to need? So we can extract a lot of data based on that information now with knowing what has happened in the three previous Winter universe, uh, Winter Games. And again, when you talk about uh, uh, Olympic Games and then maybe a Pan Am Games, you can reduce that by 15% or 50% or whatever the case may be. Uh, so it allows us to make a lot of projections now in the past that will help us to, uh, let's say, plan for future, and we can do that in farther in advance than, than we could before. Another example, Christian, is um, especially when you're talking about FF&E when you're looking at the requirements of, let's say, uh, in this particular venue. Uh, you also have existing furniture. Well, now we it would took it would have taken us when the, the, let's say the venue logistics managers on board, which are within a year of, of um, the, the opening ceremony, when they're allowed to able to go to those locations and count the, the, the existing uh, uh, FF&E. Now, with this information that we have, we can do that much sooner because we, are, we already know our baseline. So it just allows us to be more proactive um give better projections and using that data to our advantage uh to, to be able to be um you know budget we can identify what our budget's gonna be we can identify and that really helps uh with our procurement because now we don't have to wait until the last minute to understand what our needs are we can split that up and go 80-20. We can buy 80% of our items sooner and then let that 20% um, plus or minus, based on as we get closer to the games, and therefore we're not waiting on a large influx of um, of items to come, which, with now with supply lines and stuff, it could be uh, you know a very a big challenge for us. So we're able to do a lot more with data now, uh, based on the accessibility of data. Whether it's you know send me that file uh, or give me a copy of that that junk drive, so. We're able to get more data now uh, from not just the previous games, but you know, previous games uh, in succession.
1: Well, I love that, and I'm sure that our uh, mutual friend and colleague Alan Shaw will be very, very happy to hear all of this. Uh, he's been a you know huge, uh, huge uh, champion of data capture and yes. and capturing actual usage, which was a big gap, you know, historically in these major events because you had all the planning data, but you didn't know what was really actually used. And I know he spent a lot of time working on that and selfishly, uh, you know, I've I've also worked on a couple of events with Alan helping Mm -hmm. him in this area of data capture. And I think you're absolutely right. Uh, There are major efficiencies that can be gained if we just look carefully and track what has actually been used. And so uh, I think that's fantastic. Uh, And I really appreciate you bringing that up. Uh, but ultimately, these events, you know, they will happen because people have to come together and work together to make them happen. And and that takes me to point number five on your list, which is relationships drive everything. It always comes down to people. And so uh, why don't you tell us a little bit more about that point and some of the experiences that you've had that have really driven that
0: home? So there's procedures and policies in place to help people. You know, navigate. You do step one, step two, step three, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But what we have uh, we have learned is that even despite those procedures, you have to have relationships with different people in order to get things done. So, as I mentioned uh, with the example of walking into in the Middle East, walking into a person's office, you got to have the coffee, you got to have the tea, you got to sit down and have the snacks. Uh, you may have to visit the person's um uh you know go out and 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 fellowship you know at at a bar or at you know some other event you have to invest in people's uh lives to build those relationships and therefore when you get to the venue it is an easier call to make when you're calling a friend say christian i need i need some help uh i need i have a a situation here and uh, i have some some uh drinks i need to distribute because it's hot outside, and and therefore um, people need to be you know hydrated. Can you help me? You have golf carts, and you have you know available people sitting around. I have none. Can you help me? Well, that call is made, and if we're friends, that's an easier decision on you to make because we are friends and we have a relationship. Um, but if we've been ugly to one another, uh, you know, me sending bad emails to you saying that you know I don't like the color of your, your blue shirt and I don't like your glasses and therefore don't ever talk to me. When we get to the venue and I make that call, that's a harder sell for me to ask you for help now because we haven't built that relationship. So to me, and this uh, this is universal and it goes you know, beyond games, if there were relationships built, if we would take the time to understand our, our common, um, uh, things we have in common versus our differences, if there were really true relationships built between one another, a lot of our issues in this world, uh, and especially in events could be solved based on that. Uh, if I knew that if you were my brother and we had a rapport, there was, there would be nothing that I wouldn't do this for you with you to make sure that you're successful and vice versa. And that is what's missing. Um, I think in our society, I didn't mean to go off off on that tangent, but that is what is key in relationships because you have a lot of times people coming from different locations that, you know, they don't have family in those those locations. So this event gypsy community kind of blends together um, and therefore... You know, they not only do they work together, they, they play together, they, they go hiking together, they go play basketball together, they go swimming, they go eat, they go dancing, they do everything together. So now you have this family relationship, you have this more familiar um, relationship, and therefore when you make the call to ask for an, ad- an additional accreditation or you ask for an additional uniform because yours got messed up because of whatever the case may be, that's the easiest sell when you make those phone calls, as opposed to just cold calling. So that is, um, uh, and I, I alluded to it, but I had a young man who, um, rightfully so, I shouldn't say rightfully, but he got his uniform dirty because he was helping um, uh, a car broke down, and he was he was you know well versed in, in auto um, auto mechanics, so he helped the, the uh, person fixed their, their vehicle and he got his uniform completely dirty. I mean, oil and, and whatever else was dirt was on his uniform. And I was like, you cannot represent logistics. Although we are a service function and we we do work, you can't represent logistics like that. So I made a phone call to the uniform uh, person and shout out to uh, Miss Virginia Wesley. Um, she was able to give us an- another uniform and all was lost, I mean, all was uh, all saved. So um, based on those relationships, you know, you can, you can really, um, uh, you know, solve a lot of problems. And, and we didn't have to go through the, well, fill out this form, uh, let me get this approved by my manager, uh, this isn't the proper way to do things, et cetera. You can bypass a lot of the procedures uh, sometimes, and a lot of times when you have those relationships in place.
1: You know, one of the things that really strikes me as you are uh, as you're talking about this is that when you do build uh, relationships, uh, relationships of trust with people and you you learn a little bit more about them and you and you have that little motivation, your natural inclination when someone reaches out to you, your natural inclination is to help that person, to yes. help that individual solve their problem. If you are in a position to do so, and if you're not in a position to do so, then to find the person who can help them solve their problem, right? Absolutely. And that really takes me to to this point that, was, uh, that we haven't really touched on yet in your bio, which is this idea of... Uh, 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 I'm just reading it here. A devoted Christian, Michael is passionate about connecting the global logistics Ohana family and demonstrating the love of Christ through servant leadership. So, I'm wondering if you can talk about that a little bit as we as we uh, come to the conclusion of our conversation today about how that how important it is for you to connect other people to help other people and to approach your role. Uh, from a servant leadership perspective?
0: So I'll start with the the Christian uh, part, Christian. um, Play on words there. Uh, I want to say 10, 15 years ago, I really got serious about my my walk with Christ. And and I said, Lord, you know, you got to help me with this. Uh, I I want you to be my Lord and I want uh, to to serve you. So uh, I've tried to, you know, turn away from things that, um, uh, that are not, uh, pleasing and, and representative Christ. And so I have taken on this, this, uh, mantra of really walking it out and not just talking about it or not just wearing the, the name badge or, you know, the, what would Jesus do uh, bracelet. So just walking it out, uh, in my everyday life. So, uh, I am really passionate about, uh, about that now, back uh, stepping back, the Ohana family. Uh, I went on this vacation uh, to o- to Hawaii uh, once, and I went on this this um, <sighs> I went somewhere. I forgot the name of the place. It was a Hawaiian Cultural Center, and they were sharing what Ohana means. Now, I've never seen the movie Lilo and Stitch. So if you, for my friends who have seen it, you you know exactly what I'm talking about. But they described Ohana as two meanings. One, um, family, and uh, no one gets left behind. And that really, uh, you know, really centered in in, in me uh, because that's who we are. We are a global family, whether we want to admit it or not. We're brothers and sisters uh, sharing you know, uh, with one another, entertaining, engaging, helping, assisting one another, we're a global family. So that really resonated with me. And I've tried to now recreate that in my professional work, prof- professional world. So I have a, this thing, wherever I go to work, I don't hire just employees. I look for family members to hire, people that not only can I connect with, right then in the moment when we are working, but also afterwards. So I, um, I, I, I introduced that very early in um, in my professional, um, I us say uh, wherever I'm, I'm working, I introduced that very early and again, try to walk that and, and live that out in my everyday basis. So what does that mean? It means investing your time to get to know one another, not just, I hired you. Go do this job. You know, sit down and and talk with the person. Hi, where are you from? You know, uh, how many brothers and sisters do you have? What what things motivate you? And really get to understand and know who they are. Invite them out to to eat. And sometimes when I'm abroad, they invite me out to eat, and I love that. So keep it coming, everyone. Um, invite me out to eat, and and I've been welcomed into people's homes. I met family members, and you know, I, I'm very happy to. Even today, uh, I have you know mothers and grandmothers that I, I try to check on every now and then, just to see how they're doing, because they were very helpful to me. Uh, you know, sending food and just sending word and sending prayers a lot of time, just to ensure that this little black kid from South Carolina has a wonderful experience in their country. So, uh, trying to to uh live that out and, and 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 create this family but not just create this family in this one city create this family in other cities as well so now I, I've been blessed to say that you know I have this Ohana family in, in Russia and I have this Ohana family in in India and Indonesia and people that I really try to stay connected with even beyond the events over uh stay connected and you know send pictures and whatsapp has been very great for us for me to to stay connected to people i'm not on social media i'm not on on uh facebook so but whatsapp has has been good we exchange pictures of, of family members and, and kids and and i always tell them that we're connected for life and there's nothing that i wouldn't do for you that i wouldn't uh do for the next person so uh if you need me if you're on this planet if you're in my my country and, and you need me, I am there. And that answer is always, always yes. And that has, that is how I've tried to uh, live and, and breathe and operate, you know, uh, in, in my Ohana uh, family. But uh, it has been, it has been a, a lifelong dream of mine to, to just live, live out the, the principles of Christ and to, you know, show that love, and as we've said before, you know, if, if Jesus w- was walking amongst us now, we wouldn't, he wouldn't be so divisive to separate us. He would, you know, bring us, um, bring us together by showing love and showing true, genuine, genuine love, so that's been something that I've tried to um, emulate and, and uh, instill in my professional life as well, just showing love to one another, uh showing compassion showing empathy um and, and just uh you know just operating living that way
1: uh i think it's beautiful uh and it's a beautiful uh coda to our conversation here uh as we get to the end before before we before we finish wrapping it up uh did i leave any stories out <laughs> did we leave anything off the list that we need to cover
0: uh, I Anything do wanna,
1: that's uh, not within the statute of limitations, or <laughs> <you know. laughs>
0: I, I do want to give out a, a shout out to some other uh, people that I did not mention that have been instrumental in me getting in, involved in this. And I mentioned uh, Stuart Ash; uh, he was a, a, a mentor of mine and, and teacher uh, of mine. Also, a gentleman by the name of Grant Earnshaw, who is now working in Van, uh, in British Columbia. Uh, he uh, brought me over to Vancouver after I met him in in Doha. And you know, I'm, I'm forgetting someone. And I don't want to do that, so I'm sorry. Let me, because I wrote their names down. I want to make sure that I mentioned to everybody. Um, but these people have been very, very good to me and and showed me love and, and taught me things that um, were very helpful in my uh, in my journey. So. Um, Daryl Collins, uh, a gentleman who we've created, and, and we, we've talked about it a little bit, we've created this, this logistics university where we are now trying to reach out to that next generation of uh, logistics uh, and event people, because we know in the next, let's say 10 years here in North America, we're gonna have a nice string of international events that are coming, and some that may uh, in 2027, in yeah, 2027, we may have a, another one, but we have some good events coming um, in the state. So I want to make sure that we reach out to the next generation of event logistics personnel like that generation reached out to people like me. So Darrell Collins and I are working on this project where we have some digitized versions of, of training for being logistics managers. Uh, there's a gentleman by the name of Marvin Van. You may remember him as well. He was in... in uh, Salt Lake City, but he has now passed away. And he was a very good mentor of mine who who taught me some uh, some very key things about uh, being a logistics manager and, um, and, and all. Also, Larry Shank and Craig Williams, uh, two people that have uh, really helped to mentor and shape me. So I wanna give a shout out to all of those, uh, those gentlemen, uh, those men. Uh, to say thank you for reaching out and reaching back to get this little kid from South Carolina who didn't know anything. He didn't have a clue of what he was doing, um, but they really uh, invested in me and look at me now. I am, uh, we, we talked about it earlier, we, I am now at what they call an event uh, expert working with the International Olympic Committee and, you know, uh, advising on winter Olympic uh, operations. I am from South Carolina, Christian. There is we may get a uh, half an inch of snow out there, but I am a winter olympic expert because these men and women um invested in me. So I am so appreciative and and I show them all the love and uh and I share in this journey with them because of them.
1: Uh, a uh, fitting tribute uh you mentioned this logistics university that you're creating uh with your counterpart there and and you know why don't you why don't you share some advice uh some, you know some some wisdom if you will with this next generation of of uh event professionals that will come and support these events in the coming decade we've got copa america we've got the world cup we've got la 28 uh, Rugby World Cup is coming to the U.S., uh, mm-hmm. possibly women's, uh, uh, FIFA Women's World Cup, uh, and then Salt Lake 2034, you know. So yes. in the next 10 years, 11 years, we have the, an abundance of very high-profile, large-scale international events coming to our shores. And we need more resource to to help plan and deliver those. So, you know, what advice would you give to someone who is considering possibly pursuing a career in this niche, in this space, in this vertical, or is just getting going in this career? What, yeah. What recommendations would give, would you give to them?
0: I would say, bring your passion first and foremost, bring your passion and don't be afraid to show it each and every day. Um, And don't be afraid to work hard and everything that happens. And I know this generation gets a lot of flack uh, about their work ethic and, and such, but don't be afraid to, to really, um, you know, bring that every day, bring that energy every day, bring that compassion every day, bring that passion every day. So that will be point number one. Point number two is more practical in terms of this event world is great. And it has afforded me the luxury of traveling around the world and um, seeing and meeting new people. But it is very cyclical. It's very seasonal. Uh, So to be very disciplined in your money to ensure that for those dry periods, when you're in between events, you have some income or some residual income to help sustain you. Um, You and I both know when you're working on these events, you're getting 10 to 15 percent higher if you were working in, let's say, corporate in the corporate world. They do that to attract you out of that, that world, but they also give you the responsibility to manage your money. So, again, you can, um, for those lean periods, you can uh, sustain in between those, those periods. So I would say be very smart and deliberate with your money and don't live above your means uh, when you are traveling and, and working in this in illustrious uh, industry again, that, that to me is, is, is everything you, you have to bring that energy. You have to bring your work. You got to be, you can't be afraid to do the work, uh, because it is, it's going to be hard. It's going to be challenging. Uh, it's going to, you know, it's going to try you in every sense of the word, but it is ultimately rewarding and worth every minute of it well,
1: uh, I'll give a big amen <laughs> uh to to what you just said there, uh both in the more uh you know yeah the more emotional uh element of it, which is finding that something that you can be really passionate about and that you truly love, and then the more pragmatic element, which is uh hey, um, it is kind of feast or famine uh, yes. and so And so be disciplined on on, and uh, in how you go about this career uh, so that you don't end up, you know, falling off a cliff, uh, financially speaking. So I think that's a great advice. If
0: people, oh, you got one more thing. One more thing. And you just reminded me of a Christian. Uh, In this now information age, your name and your character means everything. So if you do a good job, Event number one, your name and reputation will precede you. Conversely, if you do a terrible job at event number one, you don't m- meet deadlines, you don't do the work, you're not passionate, your reputation will precede you. So it will be hard for you to stay in this industry if you don't do that, if you're not consistent with it. So, uh, and especially now, again, with you're as as close to the next your next person as a couple of clicks on LinkedIn or a couple of uh, instant messages on Facebook or or TikTok or any other social media. So make sure you do the work and make sure you keep your nose clean um, and be passionate. And then your reputation and the work will proceed and speak for you as you move on uh, in your career. And you won't always know, um, you know, who you're going to work with next. You, you won't know who, where your next paycheck is gonna come from per se, but your reputation will definitely proceed because in this event world, it's very small. And you, again, you're two clicks from someone who knows you or knows of you and knows the work that you've done and your reputation again will proceed you, so. Well, uh, once again, uh, very, very
1: solid uh, advice. and. So yeah, uh, all of you young whippersnappers out there, you <laughs> you don't want, you know, you you totally wasted a party up on on TikTok or something like this, you know, and then and uh, you know, so be, so because that stuff matters. And so so it I does. think uh, you know handling yourself professionally in your life and always uh, um, you know ensuring that your uh, you know reputations intact. I think is super important. Okay. If people want to reach out and connect with you uh, to become the next member of your Ohana family, uh, what's the best way for people to actually come in contact with you?
0: So I'm on LinkedIn. That's the only social media that I am uh, on board with. Um, so reach out to me in LinkedIn or you can reach out to me through email. I am MWING, so M Wing 2367 at gmail.com so those are the best ways to reach out please give me a call or um or sorry not call give me reach out uh and i will definitely respond uh to you so that's that's the way to reach me
1: all right fantastic well michael i hope you have a lovely christmas season there in beautiful south carolina and i appreciate you taking well, gosh, now it's been about an hour and a half of your day uh, to have this conversation with me. Uh, it's been delightful. And I wish you all the best as you continue your work with the International Olympic Committee and other endeavors.
0: Christian, again, thank you for the work that you're doing and spreading the word and, and giving people like myself and others an opportunity to share our stories and our passion. So I salute you for doing what you do. Uh, Thank you again for the the holiday uh, wishes. I wish the same for you and your family. And until the next time, my friend, uh, we'll see.
1: All right. Fantastic. Listeners and viewers, also thank you for joining us and and, uh, listening to us share our stories today. Please like and subscribe to our podcast. We'll catch you again soon. Thanks, Michael.
0: Thank you.